0: Well, this past February 21st, the famous evangelist Billy Graham passed away at the age of 99. And as I'm sure you're well aware, his impact was amazing and unprecedented. His website estimates that he preached to live audiences totaling about 215 million people. And then you add in the hundreds of millions of more people who heard him on radio and television and so on. He likely preached to more people than any person who has ever lived. I think that's quite an impact, wouldn't you say? Quite an impact, quite a legacy. Interestingly, Billy Graham experienced a crisis of faith earlier in his ministry, that almost derailed his ministry. Did you know that? Yeah, kind of fascinating story. Around the age of 30, he encountered challenges to his faith through various kind of streams of what I would call liberal theology. And Graham spoke with a friend of his named Chuck Templeton, who had started imbibing these liberal thoughts, who was also a fellow evangelist. Eventually, Graham struggled that he was kind of doubting the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. You might say, well, what did he do in the midst of this onslaught of what I would call false teaching? We talked about that a few weeks ago, if you guys recall. Well, he studied the matter greatly, reading both sides of the issue. He studied Scripture, what Scripture said about Scripture. He noted how Jesus' confidence was steadfast in the Old Testament. Things that might be debated. Jesus saw as faithful and true and reliable. But he still was struggling. He was confused. And he wondered how he could declare the gospel if inwardly he himself doubted it. He even wondered if he might go and be a dairy farmer. So this was very serious in his life. Well, one night, he took a walk in the woods near the retreat where he was staying and prayed. He poured out his concerns to God and how he, he couldn't answer all the issues that his friend Templeton was bringing up. And then he prayed, and this is recounted in his autobiography. He says that he prayed, quote, Father, I'm going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. Afterward, Graham recounted, quote, I sensed the presence and power of God as I had not sensed it in months. Not all my questions were answered, but a major bridge had been built, had been crossed. In my heart and mind, I knew a spiritual battle, in my soul had been fought and won. Graham then went on to Los Angeles to preach a crusade, and God amazingly blessed his crusade and literally catapulted his ministry to be what it went on to become, having this global impact. But false teaching, friends, I hope you caught that, almost shipwrecked Billy Graham's faith and future ministry. He's not alone. Many have gone through similar things. I experienced a similar situation when I was younger that I will discuss a little bit later in the message. And as a footnote just to that whole story, his friend Chuck Templeton, within a decade, renounced the faith and became an agnostic. So this is important, isn't it? The question is not if you will encounter false teaching, because it is so pervasive. The question is, how will you handle it when it comes your way? Because we see that its consequences are so devastating. Well, the good news is, is that God cares about this. And he's given the church resources and how to handle this false teaching. And our passage today offers powerful instructions how to do so. This is the last message from our study of the book of Jude that has been focusing on defending the faith against false teaching. As I've pointed out, there are many warnings that we see in Scripture from Jesus and the apostles about false teachers who will come along and distort the gospel, the message of salvation, who will bring, you know, Besmirch the integrity of the church by their conduct and behavior and cause Christians to lose heart, right? And also people on the outside to say, what's going on with the church? Why would I want to be interested in this message when I see the mess that is going on inside of the church? So a lot of warnings in Scripture, but of all the warnings, I would say Jude is perhaps the most detailed and passionate of all the appeals that we find. So now as the letter closes, though, Jude changes topics a little bit. He goes from focusing on the false teachers and how they were conducting themselves, the things to look out for and so forth, to now focusing on the church and how we should respond, what are we to do in light of these challenges that will come to our way. And his words are just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. I hope we will see that. So in our text, there are going to be three parts that I want us to point out. And then the passage closes with this magnificent doxology, just a magnificent doxology. So turn there to Jude. If if you haven't looked at Jude in a while, it's right before the book of Revelation. It's kind of right at the warning track, I would say, of the, the Bible. All right. Right before Revelation, little tiny book, about 25 verses. We're going to finish it today. I debated whether to break this up into two parts because there's a lot going on, but I felt like, well, let's just plow through it today. Kind of didn't have enough for another sermon, but just a lot. Okay, just warning you here today. There's a lot we're going to have to go through, throw some things up on the screen here, about a little outline if you want to use your notes there. So the first part is to remember the predictions of the Apostles, to remember the predictions of the Apostles. Read with me, if you will, verses 17 and 18. It says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. As I said, we've looked at some of these apostolic predictions and warnings about false teachers. And so their warning here, as it says, about scoffers, those who reject the faith. And Jude notes that they will arise. Did you catch that? In the last time. Did you get that? Last time. That phrase, last time, is important. It's almost kind of a a technical phrase that you will see in the New Testament, along with other phrases that are basically saying the same thing. You'll see things like last days, later times, or last hour. This is a very important thing for you to understand so that you know what the Bible is saying. When it says the last time... It is not referring to, say, the last few hours or days or months or something before Jesus comes back, right? That's not what that is referring to in the New Testament. When it says the last time, what it is actually saying, it is the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus. That entire span is known as the last time. You say, well, why is it called the last time if it covers such a long period of time? Well, it's called the last period of time because there is nothing of great significance, historical redemptive significance that needs to happen before the return of Jesus. Does that make sense? So, for example, Jesus had to come and be born and to die on the cross. That had to happen. But now that that has taken place right now, we're just looking for the return of Jesus. And so that's why it's called the last time. Let me just give you a few examples so that, You'll believe what I'm saying. Hebrews 1 1 to 2 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to us, or spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But listen to this. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Again, He's not talking about the last few hours of planet Earth. He's saying the last days, the time that Jesus ushered in by His coming. 1 Peter 1.20 says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, speaking of Jesus, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. If you want to write some of these down, Acts 2.17, 2 Timothy 3.1, James 5.3, 2 Peter 3.3, 3 are other examples of this notion of the last time, last hour, and so forth. Now, the apostles predicted that during the last time, false teachers would lead people astray. First Timothy four, one to two says, now the spirit expressly says that in latter later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. First John two eighteen says it is the last hour and as you heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So what he, John is saying here is, that look, yeah, the, the Antichrist, capital Antichrist, he's coming one day. But in the meantime, we've had a lot of lowercase Antichrist who lead people astray. We know that it's the last hour because we see that. So does everybody get that? He's not saying at the very last moment of time, he's saying this big expanse of time, this is the last hour, and we're going to be led astray or potentially led astray by false teachers during this time. You might say, well, why does Jude mention this? That's kind of a bummer, right? (laughs) I mean, to know that there's going to be these false teachers coming during the last time. How does that help us? Well, I think instead of discouraging the church it's meant to encourage the church. You know why? Because it shows that God has predicted this all along. None of this is catching God off guard, right? He is telling the church, this is going to happen. So do not be surprised when you see this. Don't necessarily think, oh, it's, it's the end. Jesus is just about to return because a false teacher popped up. Friends, this is just part and parcel of what it's like. So it should encourage us as well as wake the church up that this is going to be going on all the time to be vigilant. okay? We should not be surprised. Verse 19, Jude offers some additional things from what the apostles said. He gives three characteristics about these false teachers. Verse 19, he says, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So three things here. You see a lot of threes with Jude. He must have loved the number three because there's threes all over the place. So he gets three characteristics about these false teachers. He says they're first that they cause division. They're not seeking God's will, God's glory. They're seeking their own agendas, right? Their own promotion. We read about that uh, last time with that Old Testament character, core. Remember him in verse 11, how he wanted to supplant Moses as the leader of the Israelites, and so these folks are always causing divisions. Second, they said they're worldly people. They're worldly people. This is really fascinating. That word there, worldly, we think of that, we think, oh, this is you know music you listen to or things you watch on TV and so forth. That's a worldly influence, and that's certainly part of what the Bible teaches. But this is something different. The word there refers to the fact that these people are just natural Physical, they're driven by their bodily senses and impulses. They have no interest in spiritual things. Does that make sense? First Corinthians two fourteen says the natural's the same word there, the, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he's not able he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Remember, I was talking about some of the some of the things that Billy Graham was hearing from his friend from when I've gone back and studied those things. You know what it often boils down to? It starts. It's your starting point. For a lot of people, they just expect and start with the presupposition that God doesn't do miracles anymore, that God doesn't intervene anymore. And so therefore, Jesus couldn't be God in human flesh. There can't be miracles anymore. The Bible could not be a supernatural book. They're devoid of the Spirit. You see that? They have no interest in those things. They have no belief in those things. Everything has to have a physical explanation. Then the third characteristic is very closely related. It says they're devoid of the Spirit. You know, when a person becomes a Christian, they receive the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, that's the gift that Jesus promised. You receive the Holy Spirit. That's the defining mark. You are a new person because the Holy Spirit has come now and indwelt you. And you're a new creation in Christ. These false teachers, they're devoid of the Spirit. And they might wear robes. They might sound great. They might have advanced degrees from prestigious universities. But it doesn't matter if you're devoid of the Spirit, does it? We have a lot of that in our nation. And you see the impact that it has made. They've never been genuinely converted. And so therefore, you can see the problems that are going to happen when they're leading and guiding churches and seminaries and denominations. It's just a big royal mess. So the first thing is we're to remember the predictions of the apostles. Now, Jude knows that it's not enough just to kind of focus on the false teachers, but we need to experience positive spiritual growth too, right? That's part of it as well. And so the second part is remain in the love of God. And I think this is really the heart of what Jude is trying to communicate here to the church. Listen listen to what he says there. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What a passage. Now, I want you to get here that the main idea he wants us to get is that we're to remain in the love of God. The church is to remain in the love of God. Now, that is the command. That's the main idea. We're to remain in the love of God. And then if you, if you read that whole passage, he gives you three different ways how we are to do that. We're to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We're to pray in the Holy Spirit. And we are to wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? The main idea is to keep yourselves in the love of God, and you do it by these strings. It's like the Great Commission. The main idea is to make disciples, isn't it? We do that by teaching people to obey the the message of Christ and to be baptized. That's how you do it. So how do we remain in the love of God? Well, first, as he pointed out there, we're to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. You say, what is that? Remember, go back to verse three. Remember what he said? I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend to to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the faith is the gospel, right? It's the essentials of the faith, the essentials of Christianity. That's what he's talking about. It's the object of faith, the thing that was passed down from Jesus to the apostles and was given to the church. That's the faith. And it's fixed. It's once for all given to the church. Friends, we're to build ourselves up in this faith. That means that we're to grow in the knowledge of it, right? We're to grow in the knowledge of the Word of God. This is how we grow. It doesn't just happen, right? I think it's a lot of inspiration, but it's also a lot of perspiration, isn't it? As you roll up your sleeves and read the Word of God and listen to godly message, we grow in the Word of God. We are built up in our faith. We must grow in it. And when we build ourselves up, it makes such a difference when it comes to dealing with false teachers. I mentioned earlier how I had a period of struggle in my own life. When I was 21 is when I became a Christian. I didn't know a thing about the Bible. And so, about a year or so later, the Lord started pressing on my heart about going into full time vocational ministry. And at this point, I was now a senior in college. And I said, Well, I know I want to go into ministry, so I have some free classes here. Let me go and take some religion courses at the university that I was attending. Blind as a bat. I had no idea of the liberal influence, theological liberalism, that was pervasive in their religion department. And let me tell you, a semester or two of hearing those things for someone who had no real background, it started eroding my faith. And I, like Billy Graham, I started to wonder about the faith And do I want to go into ministry if I don't really believe it? I needed to build myself up. Thankfully, some resources got passed on to me that kind of gave me greater confidence of what the Word of God taught. I saw some things. I was building myself up. And then I went on to seminary and then kind of experienced a treasure trove of resources out there. And it was eye opening to go back and then see all those things I was being told in those religion classes were so weak and shallow. But they are passed on like this is the truth. And you should therefore doubt the Bible. And I just sat back and wondered how many people have been shipwrecked. Because they they didn't get the resources that I had. Friends, you got to build yourselves up. You have to build yourselves up. There are all kinds of things out there as well as just clinging on to the Word of God, understanding it properly. You will see that it stands the test of all attacks. So we're to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Second, pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, some people take that to be some kind of special Prayer pray, praying experience. I don't think so. I think this is just normative prayer that we're supposed to be praying. We are always supposed to be praying in the Holy Spirit. The reason I say that, you look at Ephesians 6:18, Paul tells the church, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. I don't necessarily think that there's just certain people who are to pray in the Spirit, but the rest of us chumps are supposed to just kind of pray the best we can. The Bible doesn't spell it out exactly, but I just think just common sense and a knowledge of the Bible tells you certain things are just, just essential to praying in the Spirit. First of all, we must pray with clean hearts. He is the Holy Spirit, isn't he? So if we're praying under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, you've got to have a clean heart, right? You have to confess your sins and be right with God, or He is not going to be praying and interceding on your behalf. We must pray according to the will of God. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture to pen these words. And these words are given to us to know how to pray. What is the will of God? And so you know you're praying for the will of God when you pray scripture. If you're praying for your friends to grow in godly character, you're praying biblical stuff. If you're praying for the kingdom of God to advance, you're praying biblical stuff, right? You're praying in the spirit. And then lastly, I think we must pray according to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but sometimes my prayer life can fall into the trap of routine and ritual right not that you intend to but it's just sort of what we fall into Now, there's nothing wrong with having prayer lists and things like that. I highly recommend that, to have a structure to it. But at the same time, it's just human nature to allow that to sort of be how we pray. And instead, prayer, remember, is always a conversation built on a relationship. And so I think the Holy Spirit who's dwelling inside of us wants us to consciously depend upon His leadership and guidance as we pray. Amen? So if he puts a burden on your heart to pray for somebody, don't dismiss it. Or if he's praying you to pray about a situation, urging you to pray about a situation, don't dismiss it. Listen to the Holy Spirit prompting you to pray. And when we pray, don't 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 go in saying, "Okay, this is what I'm here to do, Lord. I want you to put your stamp on it. No, it is Lord. I want to pray according to your will. Lead and guide me. As you will. So to remain in the love of God, we must pray in the spirit. Third, we got to wait for the return of Jesus. What does he say there? Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We're waiting for the mercy. For him to return. and Give us eternal life. You say, well, how does waiting for his return help us to remain in the love of God? Well, I think by waiting For Jesus to return, it really helps us to focus on the things that matter most. Here's an example how this might play out. Talked last week about the prosperity gospel and the damage that has done to the church. The prosperity gospel teaches that God's will is for every Christian to be rich, wealthy, and healthy. Well, friend, if you are focused on the return of Christ, if that's your heartbeat, you're going to be longing for resurrection bodies. Not a healing of your present body that's inevitably going to break down and die anyway, right? All about praying for healing. All about that. That brings glory to God. God cares for us. We should be praying for those things. But if that is your consuming passion, is that you will never have a health problem, you're missing out on the greater thing, which is the resurrection body. Amen? Or if your focus is to have uh, you know, abundant riches and the things of this world, you're, you're, you're missing. You're blind. You're missing on all the glories of heaven that God is going to bring one day in the new creation. It's like the old joke about the man who who's worried about heaven, not having money and so forth in heaven. And so he he smuggles in a suitcase full of gold and he brings it into heaven because he thinks he really needs this stuff. And someone says, well, what's the suitcase for? And he kind of shyly opens it up and he sees all the gold bars there. And the guy says, what are you doing with that? That's our asphalt around here. Why do you want gold here? Friends, if we're waiting for Jesus, the chatter of false teachers will just kind of lose its impact. Thinking about the storm and probably I know for some of you had a hard time getting home that night. Or maybe you were looking for your spouse or kids to get home or something. You were looking out your window, weren't you? Or you were looking down at your cell phone. Some telemarketer calls up and starts trying to get your ear about some vacation to Cancun or some lost inheritance you're about to experience or something. Are you really interested in that when you're looking out the window for your loved one to return? I think they're the same way with Jesus. If we are really focused on his return, lost or excuse me, false teachers, they don't have a lot of fertile ground to mess with, do they? Because you're focused on greater things. Last part here, so we've seen, remember the predictions of the apostles. We've also seen that we are to remain in the love of God. The third part is reaching out to others, reaching out to others. Our relationship to Christ is not just about ourselves. We have an obligation to seek the spiritual welfare of others. And we also add this, it's not just the responsibility of the leaders to do it all. Yes, the leaders have that responsibility. It's why they're called shepherds. But friends, it's a corporate responsibility because sometimes there's situations and events and things going on that the leaders don't know about. Or maybe you have a more personal connection. Or maybe it is your words and your love and your ministry that will turn the tide in that situation. And so Jude mentions three ways of reaching out for people who have been affected by these things. And I think as he does here, he's kind of moving from those who are least impacted to the most impacted. Verse 22 to 23 reads, And have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So again, three situations. First, we must show mercy on those who doubt. Now, I think in his context, he's talking about these false teachers who had come along and sowed seeds in the hearts of the congregation, at least some of them, and they were doubting the faith. And I think most believers, if they're honest, struggle with doubts at some point. Mention Billy Graham. What about John the Baptist? You remember him and his story? John the Baptist. He was struggling whether Jesus was the Christ. He saw Jesus do miracles. But he had bought into this notion that the Messiah, he had to come in and get rid of the Romans, right? Jesus didn't do any of that stuff. And so John was doubting. So people have doubts. And those doubts get exacerbated when false teachers come along and they start, well, this isn't true about the Bible, or let me question this particular part of that. It starts causing people to have doubts. Friends, the church needs to be a place where people are helped with their doubts. And it's something we need to grow in, particularly with young people. Read a survey that found that among 18 to 29 year olds who left the church, over one third said that the church is not a safe place to express doubts. And one-fourth of them have serious doubts that they wanted to discuss. We don't need to pretend like we've got every single answer in the Bible figured out. Or that we never have a question here and there. When people have doubts, they need to have an open door. That we can talk to them about. So when others doubt, let us show mercy. This is a side note here. Uh, at our house this summer we're going to be hosting what we're calling five big questions so in july five sunday nights in a row and we're going to put out a survey maybe you guys have some questions that you would love to see addressed and and we might do some of those there in july so we must show mercy on those who doubt second we must save others from judgment Others, I guess, are further along with spiritual danger. Not only were they kind of having some doubts, but they were really seeming to imbibe and, and, and take in these false teachers and their views and their lifestyles. And, you know, some people can appear to be, who are genuinely saved, can appear to be rejecting the faith and, and appear to be heading for judgment. Notice well, that word there, fire, right? I mean, that's connoting judgment. It looks like that's the case. And, friends, that happens, Right? Where you see someone and they start drifting, and you look at them and you and you sit there and you scratch your head and you say, I don't know if this person's saved or not. They made a profession of faith at one point in their life, but now they're seeming to drift away. You're wondering if they are genuinely saved. What are we supposed to do? Well, Jude says that we're to snatch them from the fire, out of the fire, that we would step in and intervene. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever dropped something valuable in a fire? I'm not saying like a piece of paper or something that is gone, but maybe something that you had a a split second to get it out, something valuable. What would you do? What did you do? You got it out, didn't you? It's okay to get a little singe on your hand or get a little soot or get a little dirty or inconvenience yourself. You want to get it out. And it's the same way with wayward Christians. God wants us to have a sense of urgency to reach in and try to snag them out of there. Practically, I think that means that we maybe want to talk to them. Sometimes we just assume it's all going to work out. But that's not the case. God wants us to be used by Him. We don't save anybody, but He uses us, doesn't He? So maybe we need to have that conversation with them. It's a little awkward and difficult. Pray for them, fast for them. Maybe enlist others to be praying on our behalf, even to share and let down our guard and maybe humble ourselves and say, so and so in my life or this situation, this person is drifting. Will you come and pray for me? Will you pray for this situation? Let me ask you, are there people in your life today? That you need to snatch from the fire? Let me encourage you, God can use you as His instruments to do so. If He is telling us to do this, that means He has given us the ability to do so. Amen? These aren't false promises. Third, we must show mercy on those who are deeply affected. What it says there, remember at the end of verse 23. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So again, it indicates this final group, they were deeply immersed in sin. We should show mercy to them, not judge them. Try to show them mercy. But we we also need to do so with fear, don't we? We should not think that we are above temptation. We might have... This strength that we all of a sudden think we're impervious, but we should be always cautious in case we fall into the same sin ourselves. Galatians 6.1 says, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or else you may, you also may be tempted. See the old saying about hating the sin, but loving the sinner, right? We don't want to see that happen to our own lives, but we need to be cautious because it very well could if we're not careful, but extend mercy nonetheless. Now, let's look at verses 24 and 25 as Jude closes with some of my favorite words in the Bible, this wonderful doxology, which is a word of praise as he closes out this wonderful letter. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. So Jude just showers praise on God, the only God who is also our Savior. And this God is able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to keep you from stumbling. What does that mean? Well, it means He will keep you from stumbling on the path of salvation. In other words, God not only can keep you from stumbling, but He will keep you from stumbling. Does that encourage you this morning? He will keep you from stumbling. You say, why is he so nice? Well, remember back in verse 1, it says that we are being kept for Jesus Christ. In some sense, we're sort of a secondary partner in this whole thing. He's really keeping us for Jesus Christ. If You remember back in our study in John, remember how it said that we're a gift from the Father to the Son, and He's going to keep His gift Jesus said in John 10, 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one. You are safe in the Father's hand. A genuine Christian will never lose their salvation, not because there's anything special about us, but because God is keeping you for Christ. Now, you you might be sitting there thinking, well, whoa, 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 whoa. You just said earlier, we have to keep ourselves in the love of Christ, the love of God. I did. The Bible says the same thing. We are to keep ourselves. It's not just a fake responsibility. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. But undergirding all of that and the one who is ultimately responsible is God, who gives us the grace and the power to do so. And gives us the assurance that we will be kept till the end. And not only that, you will stand before God one day. And you will stand before him blameless. Blameless. Did you get that? Now notice I didn't say sinless. Because nobody would be there if that was the case. But blameless. Blameless. Meaning all of your sins washed away. All of your failures, all the times that you sinned, did things by commission, by omission, all of that washed away. Is there really any greater joy in knowing and having that peace that when you stand before your maker one day, you will have a completely blameless claim before him? Washed away. All washed away. So that's why we stand before him with great joy, right? Spiritual jumping jacks we should have for what he has done for us. That's why we praise him. As that doxology closes, it says, we give to God glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Friends, God deserves all possible praise, whether we're talking about what happen in eternity past eternity future god deserves to be praised forever and ever and ever and ever by his creation and by his church amen and that is what we'll be doing for all of eternity amen well i hope you have enjoyed the book of jude these last what four or five weeks or so Going a Open the floor here just if there's any kind of closing comments or words of encouragement, testimonies, questions you might have from either this passage or the whole time in the book of Jude. Let me pray, and then we'll do that. Father, we come before you this morning thankful that we have had this blessed opportunity to study the book of Jude. And we know, Lord, this is a hard-hitting book. It's a wake-up call to the church to take seriously the threat of false teaching. And Lord, we've heard these things in the weeks before, but now this morning we have heard the plea to keep ourselves in the love of God. So Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us and help us as we anchor ourselves into your love. Father, we pray that we would uh, pray in your spirit on a daily basis. We pray, God, that we would be built up in our most holy faith. And Lord, we pray that you would stir in us a hunger and a watching and a waiting for your return. And Lord, for those in our lives who maybe are struggling, maybe going wayward a little bit from the faith, having doubts or maybe really falling away, God, use us to step in to save them from the fire. And Lord, we praise you for who you are, both now and forever. We praise the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.